Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I just got back from the Real Estate Guys Summit at Sea. Actually, I didn't just get back. I got back a couple of days ago. My youngest daughter, I have three daughters, and the youngest one was turning two, so I had to jump off the boat a little early. Anyway, well, I didn't really jump off the boat. I got off early in Belize, but let me tell you, wow, the real estate guys. I mean, those guys know how to deliver. If you don't listen to their podcast, by the way, you really should. It's the Real Estate Guys radio show, and there are lots of copycat real estate shows out there, but there's only one Robert and Russ. And these guys are just great guys, tons of integrity, tons of content. Can't say enough about them. So if you haven't already tuned in, that's certainly something to add to your lineup, the Real Estate Guys radio show. Anyway, before I go too much into the summit, I do want to back up and just point out that on WealthFormula.com, there's a lot of interesting things on there. And we just added something called the Weekly Wealth Widget, and that I added a few weeks ago. And the reason behind it was that I wanted to... Now, be a little bit more specific in the information that I was actually providing. We talk about some fairly sophisticated things on the show, and we throw a lot of words out there like cap rate, NOI, and you know a variety of things that if you're listening for the first time, and if you're not really a sophisticated investor, you might be a little confused by it. But that's not to say that you're not smart. I mean, listen, I didn't know this stuff, and I did everything from operate on brains to to cutting open necks, whatever. I mean, I was a surgeon. I didn't know any of this financial lingo. So what I'm trying to do here is back up. And for those of you who are super smart at what you do, but you don't know much about financial language, try to give you these morsel-sized, you know, bite-sized bits of financial information so that we can slowly and surely get everybody caught up with the language. Because as you know, or maybe you don't know, but the reality is that investing is like anything else. I mean, for you doctors out there, I know that you were in residency and one day you found yourself talking a language that everybody else was talking around you and you're like, whoa, what happened? I just turned into a doctor. 
I used to be a glorified college student called a medical student. Anyway, that's the way it works. That's the way I found that everything really works is that you get immersed in it, you listen, and one day you're like talking the language and you know what you're talking about. So anyway, Weekly Wealth Widget will help you do that. Every week there's going to be a small amount, a, a very short email, you know, maybe a couple paragraphs just talking about a specific term. Like, for example, the first one was about what is net operating income? Well, for a lot of you, you're me like, of course I know what net operating income is. Well, you had to learn somewhere. So that's what this is all about. So I encourage you to go and sign up for the weekly wealth widget so that you can get that information and, you know, it'll get increasingly sophisticated over time. We will also archive some of that on the site. So don't miss out. Now, also for you accredited investors out there, you can go and sign up for Investor Club. We now have 200 accredited investors in the Investor Club. That is pretty impressive, guys. So the more we have, the more deal flow and leverage that we're going to have. So go ahead and do that. Sign up if you are an accredited investor. And it's not just about deal flow. We're also trying to get some educational things on there. Later on in, I think in April, maybe next month, but we have some interesting stuff coming on with regard to tax mitigation. We've got stuff for you know advanced asset protection, et cetera. Some webinars that are specifically geared towards accredited investors. So go ahead and sign up for that on the site. So anyway, let's get back to this summit. So I learned so much there and I have so much to tell you that, you know, I was thinking, well, how am I going to do this? You know, I mean, I usually do this as an introduction to a show, but there's just so many different topics and there's no way to make it cohesive. So I'm going to try to split it up over the next few weeks. And if I can't, if I don't feel like I've delivered, you know, enough, I have more to share than I'm going to actually do a show and talk about some of the topics that I learned about. But as many of you know, Robert Kiyosaki was on the trip and I got very lucky in that I randomly, seriously, randomly, I didn't stock the guy as I sat next to him for several meals. And in fact, at one point I sat next to him for, I think, three or four meals in a row. And I think it's, you know, we share some kind of common hunger pattern or something like that. It was weird. I mean, at one point, and this wasn't at a regular meal time. I snuck out of the lectures because I could feel my blood sugar dipping. And I went up to the buffet, you know, and there wasn't any other summit goers. There were mostly a bunch of folks just binging away on the buffet and then, you know, on their way out to the pool. Anyway, I grabbed a seat at the bar table and I called my wife because it was her birthday. And then, you know, I saw Robert Kiyosaki at the buffet line. And I had actually already sat next to him the night before, so I'd actually had a chance to meet him. He waved to me and came over and sat down. So I ended up talking to him for the next, I think it was just almost about 90 minutes, almost two hours. And that was a treat. Why? Well, obviously, as many of you know, Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant changed my life for good. And, and really, it's the, you know, after reading that, I define that as the moment when I became an entrepreneur. But more than that, you know, this wasn't just, you know, me being like, you know, groupie. I just really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, I realized the depth of Robert Kiyosaki's intellect. Robert is not a cuddly bear. I mean, he's a tough dude, man. He's an ex-Marine. He means business. And he's also one seriously smart dude. Experience. It was just a really great experience for me to be able to sit down with him for greater than 90 minutes and just exchange ideas. I mean, I told him about things I was thinking, too, and it was just really gratifying to be able to talk to somebody of his intellectual caliber. And, you know, 
talking to smart people who think different, as Steve Jobs would say, to me, it's uh, than just about anything else. And that's one of the great things about doing this podcast, too. And the only thing I would probably trade that conversation in with Robert Kiyosaki is probably the Minnesota Vikings winning the Super Bowl with me as the owner of the team. I think that w- I would trade that. So anyway, let's get back here again to the summit. Now, remarkably, one of the things that was clear from all the speakers was that everyone, Everyone seemed to agree that we're not in a great time in this economy. And that's not a surprising thing to hear from, say, a Peter Schiff. You know, Peter, I listen to Peter Schiff all the time. But, you know, Robert Helms says that Peter Schiff has predicted 19 of the last two recessions. So it's pretty funny. But I, by the way, Peter Schiff's podcast is one I never miss because the guy is super smart, too. So you should check that out as well. You know, or there's other people on there like, you know, Simon Black. I mean, he's, again, a really smart guy. He's he's pretty pessimistic about the U.S. in general. You know, he advocates planting flags in other countries as a plan B, mostly because he believes that uh, destruction of the U.S. economy is imminent. But, you know, also just in general, there are obviously other advantages to that. These are all smart guys, but they generally are pretty pessimistic about the economy in the U.S. in particular. But in this case, even Douglas Duncan, okay, we had a guy on there, Douglas Duncan, he's a chief economist at Fannie Mae, and even he felt the economy was not in a good place. Now, understand, these guys, these are the mainstream guys, right? These Usually, these guys are the optimists, but Doug pointed out in his talk, which was fantastic, about how this was the third longest economic expansion in U.S. history, all right, so that alone... You know, maybe it's time for a recession. But not only that, but it's been the worst expansion in terms of GDP growth and especially bad for the working class. And you wonder and you wonder why there is such a big populist movement going on. Right. Hopefully we get Doug on the show, by the way. I I think that would be a very, very interesting conversation. But again, so to make my point. You know, the guys who normally talk negatively about the economy and talk about imminent threats to the economy, they were saying what they were saying. But even the guys who were mainstream, who normally are very optimistic, were concerned about where we're at. So I thought it really fascinating. Later on in the cruise, you know, Robert Kiyosaki actually commented at one of the lunches that I was able to attend that he said, you know, it makes me worried when we all think the same thing. What am I not seeing? So I think that's actually really brilliant, right? I mean, it's a guy with a lot of experience in life and seeing a lot of different economies. And that is a good question. What aren't we seeing? And that's sort of a scary question. Sometimes things are just obvious, you know, but other times there are just a few extraordinary individuals who see things that no one else does. And it actually reminded me of the night before the presidential election, this last one here. So I am a lifetime member of Jim Rickard's strategic intelligence newsletter. And, you know, I receive these urgent updates once in a while via email. And so the day before the election, I got an alert and there was a video that Jim sent out. And on that video, Jim confidently told the world that Donald Trump was going to win the presidential election. He did. It was amazing. No one was thinking that. He had sought and found clear evidence that polling was biased and wrong. 
I mean, this is a smart guy. And he did the same thing just a few months earlier, by the way, when he predicted the Brexit vote. So that's pretty unusual, right, for someone to get those types of things right. Anyway, Jim is one of the brains that I follow closely. And in this volatile time in history, with the prospect of war on multiple fronts and all that, I thought it would be great if we could talk to him. So when we come back... We will talk to Jim Rickards about the global economy and the role, specifically, of financial war. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, I have James Rickards, who's the a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books. We've got Currency Wars, The Death of Money, The New Case for Gold, and The Road to Ruin. These are all fascinating books, which have been translated into 14 languages. He's also the chief global strategist for Mariglam, Inc., editor of the newsletter Strategic Intelligence and a member of the advisory board for the Center of Financial Economics at Johns Hopkins. Jim is also an advisor on international economics and financial threats to the Department of Defense in the U.S. intelligence community and has the distinction of serving as a facilitator of the first ever financial games conducted by the Pentagon. So you've heard me reference his work several times on this show, and now it's my pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Jim Rickards. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Thank you, Buck. It's great to be with you. So I wanted to start right off the bat, and I'm excited about this. So let's start with the notion of financial war. So right now, it seems like the world is full of hot spots for kinetic war, right? North Korea, South China Sea, Middle East, of course, always, right? The potential for war throughout the world seems dangerously high. And I just wanted to get a sense from you a little bit about how financial war games might play into all of this. Well, that's a great question, Buck. Could not be more timely. And the point I make is that financial war is not coming. It's here. And it's been here for a while now. You referenced the, the war game participated in. It was the first ever financial war game. Now, the this was in 2009. I wrote about this in my first book, Currency Wars. And Pentagon didn't need any help from me in terms of war gaming in general. They've been doing that for decades. But this was the first time they'd done a financial war game. And so questions in the game design... How many rounds would it be? Who would the teams be? What would the scenarios be? What financial instruments might come into play? That's where they needed expertise. And I was uh, very privileged to be invited to, first of all, help uh, plan it and facilitate and then actually participate in it. We played it for two days at the Warfare Analysis Laboratory at the Applied Physics Laboratory. It's a top secret weapons lab about halfway between Washington and Baltimore, actually associated with uh, Johns Hopkins University. But in addition to you know research on satellites and weapons and things like that, they do have this a war room, basically, where they facilitate these kinds of war games, uh, and they do them on a regular basis. So that was sort of looking over the horizon, getting ready for this. Since then, it's become a very significant part of geopolitics, and I'll give you some specifics. And by the way, the place I wrote the most about this, I've included some of it in all my books. Of course, Currency Wars talked about this Pentagon war game, but in terms of the actual financial war fighting strategies, there was quite a bit about this in my book, The Death of Money, which came out in 2014. But just this week, it's out in a new paperback edition after three years in hardback. It's coming out in paperback, including new material, a new preface that I wrote that talks a lot specifically about financial warfare. So let's just give some concrete examples. 
In 2011-2012, the U.S. was in a financial war with Iran, and this had to do with Iran's efforts to enrich uranium and build a a nuclear weapons uh, program and the U.S. efforts to stop them. A lot of people have heard about the Stuxnet virus. That was a cyber attack, not a financial attack. But on the financial front, the U.S. did a number of things. First of all, we put sanctions on a lot of Iranian entities, uh, individuals, members of the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, that has some impact, but it's not decisive. It, you know, some general gets to Geneva and his credit card doesn't work or companies can't move money through the banking system. That's one level. But the U.S. took it beyond that. We cut them out of the dollar payment system. Now, that's easy for us to do us being in the United States, because we control the dollar payment system. It's run through a system maintained by the Federal Reserve called Fedwire, ultimately under the auspices of the U.S. Treasury. Every dollar payment in the world has to go through a U.S. bank, and they all settle and clear through Fedwire. So that cut Iran off from dollar payments. But Iran, because Iran's a major oil exporter, and they have to get paid in hard currency for the oil they export. But Iran kind of shrugged and said, well, okay. We can't get paid in dollars. That's fine. We'll just get paid in euros or Swiss francs. I mean, there are other hard currencies out there that they were happy to accept. So they started trying to get paid in euros. But then the United States got together with our allies and and something called SWIFT. SWIFT is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. It's just an acronym based in Brussels in Belgium. And with our European allies and the other members of the board, we kicked Iran out of SWIFT. Now, that's a lot more serious because now you can't settle in any currency, any major currency, you know, euros, yen, Swiss francs, other things that you might want. So this had very severe repercussions in Iran. So for one thing, they could still sell oil, say, to India and get paid in Indian rupees and deposited in an Indian bank, that doesn't have to go through SWIFT, but what are you going to do with all those rupees? I mean, you could buy stuff in India, but that currency is not good for anything else that Iran might want to import. But, you know, the Iranian people, interestingly, fairly westernized by our standards, certainly compared to some yeah. cultures. Mm-hmm. They like their iPhones and their HP printers just as much as we do. And so there's a very active smuggling trade coming in from Dubai. You, you walk along uh, Banias Road in Dubai, if you've ever been there, they have all these old wooden dowels, really medieval design, but the boats actually work quite well in those conditions. And uh, you see all these boxes stacked up, you know, Sony and HP and all these labels. Well, who knows what's inside, but there's a lot of smuggling going on, but Dubai smugglers want to get paid in cash. So you had Iranian middlemen getting dollars from Iraq, believe it or not. There were a lot of dollars floating around Iraq because of the U.S. involvement there, smuggling them into Iran. There was a black market in dollars versus the Iranian rial. The black market rate was put the rial at half the official rate. That's very typical. Of course, the black market rate is always the real rate. The official rate isn't. Um, but that meant there was hyperinflation in Iran because the currency dropped in value by half. People started taking the money out of the banks. There was a run on the banks. The Central Bank of Iran had to raise interest rates to fight the bank run. So you had hyperinflation, sky-high interest rates, drying up of goods, commerce, dissatisfaction. Iran was well on the way to regime change without firing a shot because of this financial war that the U.S. had launched. Now, President Obama declared a truce in effect in December 2013. What he wanted to do was get Iran to the bargaining table in connection with their uranium enrichment program, and the Iranians agreed. So I guess from a diplomatic point of view, you could call that a win. My own view is we shouldn't have dialed it down so easily. We, we should have dialed it up a little bit. But that's a policy issue. You can debate it away. But the point is our financial weapons were 
extremely effective in that case. Interestingly, now that Trump's in, we're actually reimposing some of those sanctions. Trump made it very clear, and I think Secretary of State Rex Tillerson made it clear that they don't particularly feel bound by the nuclear agreement that the U.S. and Iran struck. Whether they tear it up or not, let's see, but they are certainly putting sanctions back in place. So we are once again dialing up our financial war with Iran. So that's one case. Second case, we're in a financial war with Russia. That has to do with obviously Russian annexation of Crimea and their incursions into eastern Ukraine. The U.S. did not want to respond kinetically. Nobody thought it was a good idea to drop the 82nd Airborne into Sevastopol. So we deal with Iran. We put sanctions on and we gradually dial those up. Putin consider this to be an act of war, and I think he was correct about that, it is an act of war. It's not, it's not kinetic, as I mentioned, but still degrading the capabilities and wealth and resources of your adversary. Russia put sanctions on the U.S. after we put sanctions on them. This went back and forth. Now, this has been far less decisive than it was in the Iranian case. It has not changed Russian behavior. And that was predictable because the Russians have really a capacity to hunker down. I mean, the way the Russians look at it, they survived Napoleon, they survived Hitler. I mean, certainly some Obama financial sanctions weren't going to be the end of the world for them. They just sort of just say, pass the vodka and, and wait it <laughs> out. And uh, so they've been very resilient in that respect. But those sanctions are still in place. And then you have rogue nations like North Korea. Now, interesting case there. The country of Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world, they had their reserves on deposit with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So I consider that the safest bank in the world, right? It's part of the U.S. Sure. Central Bank. So here's the poorest country in the world, practically Bangladesh, putting their reserves at the safest bank in the world, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. $81 million was stolen, went missing through cyber theft. And I do make the point that if Bangladesh had kept the reserves in gold, they'd still have the money. They'd have the physical gold in the vault. <laughs> yeah, but because yeah. they were relying on digital dollars, the money went missing. Very recently, just in the past few days, it has been revealed that it looked like North Korea was behind that. This was cyber financial warfare theft. It's kind of a gray line between the two by North Korea. Well, why does North Korea want hard currency? Well, they're using that money to maintain their own nuclear weapons program. They've got plutonium and highly enriched uranium for probably 10 bombs. They're working on their miniaturization, what's called ruggedization, making it more rugged, of the warheads. And they're testing missiles and getting closer to an intercontinental ballistic missile. They're not there yet, but they're probably not more than four years away from being able to fire a nuclear tip ICBM at Los Angeles, killing three or four million Americans and holding U.S. hostage. That's not going to be allowed to happen. So I expect we'll go to war with North Korea to prevent that. So the point, Buck, is that financial warfare is here. It's going on as we speak. We're in a financial war with Russia and North Korea and Iran. It's an extension of doctrine. So it doesn't mean kinetic warfare is over. It just means that financial warfare and kinetic warfare will be combined to achieve strategic objectives. It's getting more intensive and see issues more. So it's critical for not just financial analysts, but also geopolitical analysts to understand the implications of this. By the way, one last footnote. How do you get around things like what we call de-swifting? De-swifting is when you know, a country gets kicked out of the SWIFT payment system. Digital hacking, digital theft, freezing accounts, de-swifting, interdicting flows. Well, one way around it is with physical gold. 
Right. It's not digital. You can't hack it. You can't interdict it. And we see the emergence of, I actually just contributed to a strategic group from the Center for Sanctions and Illicit Finance, a part of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies as a Washington think tank. But I wrote about what I call the axis of gold. It's Russia, China, Iran, and Turkey. But I think you could kind of put North Korea in as an auxiliary member. But these are countries that are acquiring massive amounts of physical gold. They're using it to settle payments between each other. You literally just put the gold on a plane, fly it to the destination, unload it. But the point is, it's not digital. You can't stop. This is an alternative to the dollar payment system. Yeah, as I recall, too, part of the financial war games was putting gold front and center and creating sort of a new standard based on gold. I think, isn't that correct? With Russia was creating a new currency based on a gold standard or something like that. That's exactly right. What I would say about that is I tried to introduce that as a scenario and I didn't get very far because it wasn't taken seriously at the time. It's interesting, you know, eight years later, we see this axis of gold, which is exactly what we were warning uh, myself and some colleagues were trying to warn the Pentagon about. We pretty much got left out. I mean, we were, you know, these war games, you might in this big war room, as I described it, picture, you know, that movie Dr. Strangelove in the 60s, or uh, I guess it was a movie war games more recently, maybe from the 80s, but these big military style, intelligence style war rooms. Well, there are maybe 100 people in the room, but we had people from the CIA, the Treasury, the Pentagon, the FBI, but also you know, think tanks, uh, universities, uh, professors, et cetera, what I call the, the usual suspects. And one of the things I did during the design phase is I said to the sponsors and, and to the uh, Pentagon, I said, look, let me recruit some of my buddies from Wall Street. I mean, if you want to Wars are, are nothing but, you know, lying, cheating and deception. So let's get some Wall Streets in here. They, <laughs> they know how to do that than anybody. Uh-huh. And so I was able to bring in a couple associates, one guy run a private equity fund in Russia, another guy, top strategist for UBS, one of the biggest banks in the world. He had to get permission from his bosses, but they said, okay. So we injected kind of real life Wall Street strategy in this and tried to get this gold scenario going. But I was actually playing on the China team. And I had one of my recruits was on the Russia team. So we were in cahoots a little bit trying to introduce this. So we did get it on the record. We did make an impact, but it didn't go. We were trying to get a scenario where China and Russia joined forces, combine their gold in a vault in Switzerland, create a new bank in the UK that would issue a new gold-backed currency. And the point is, we knew that the gold had to be in Switzerland. Nobody would trust the Russians you know, not right. to steal it. And the bank had to be in London because of the rule of law. But subject to that, but the kicker was that they said, from now on, if you want Russian natural resource exports or Chinese manufactured goods, you have to pay for us in this new currency. And if you want some, you can trade with us and run a surplus and you can earn some. We'll give it to you. Or you can put your own gold in the depository and our, go to London and our bank will issue this currency because you've now put some gold into the pool. Or we'll lend you some. We'll have kind of an IMF type of facility. So it's actually a very feasible way of running the dollar off the road because who would want dollars not backed by gold if you could have a new currency that is backed by gold? That was the scenario. I introduced it from the Chinese perspective. I could not get my colleagues to go along. Russia did it on their own, so not quite as successful. Interestingly, one of, I tend not to mention names in my book, unless it's favorable. If I have something nice to say, I'll mention the name. (laughs) But if I'm a little more critical, I usually just use descriptions. No no reason to embarrass people. But 
one of the naysayers was actually went on to run the Asia desk for the National Security Council for the White House. He went into the Obama White House early 2009, right after we played this war game. So these are real world people who do influence policy. And we were trying to make an impact. Didn't I was glad we introduced the scenario. I did write about it in my book. It was nice to get the marker down there so that now, you know, as I say, eight years later, these things are actually coming to pass. Yeah. Now, so one of the interesting parallels, I think, with that situation and sort of what may be going on in the real world, this this idea of the SDR, in some respects, if you think about why these countries are potentially, you know, hoarding gold, it may be a way of sort of getting a bigger influence on the SDR. Do you think that's reasonable? I think I view them as alternatives. What mm-hmm. they have in common, by the way, probably listeners, we should explain what, uh, right. you know what an SDR is and so do I, but I think until recently, even a lot of experts right, right, right. Thought, thought it was like strawberry daiquiri on the rocks, but <laughs> it stands for special drawing right, which is a really geeky name, but it's geeky by design because the sponsors don't want you to, or me or others to understand what it is. It's, I call it world money because it is world money. So again, the SDR is world money. It's issued by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, which functions as a kind of central bank of the world. By the way, the IMF, the SDR, these are real institutions and real things that exist today. This isn't some you know, made up one world scenario coming down the road. The IMF has been around since 1944. The special drawing right has been around since 1969. There's nothing new about any of these things. How they might be used in the future is new, but people will try to make it sound complicated, but it's really quite simple. The Federal Reserve, our central bank, is a printing press. They can print dollars. The European Central Bank has a printing press. They can print euros. The IMF has a printing press. They can print these SDRs and create as many as they want. The only difference is that SDRs only go to countries. They, You and I are not going to have them in our pockets. It's not what in Philadelphia we call walking around money. So individuals won't have them, but countries do. But they can still be used. Countries can use them to pay for oil, to settle balance of payments, to for direct foreign investment, any capital account flows between or among countries can be paid and settled in these STRs. And you can also swap them for other currencies, such as dollars and euros that might be more useful. But they come out of thin air. They're not backed by anything. They're not constrained by anything. For that matter, IMF has the authority to give them to the United Nations to support climate change. I mean, they don't have to give them just to member countries. They can give them to multilateral institutions, including the United Nations. So they're a very powerful tool. They were last used in August 2009. That was not a coincidence. Obviously, that was the aftermath of the global financial crisis of 2008. It was another liquidity tool or way to get liquidity into the system. The point I make is that in the next financial crisis, which I think will come, you pretty clearly see it coming sooner than later, which will be worse than the crisis of 2008. In fact, so much worse that it will be what I call an extinction-level event. I cover this in my most recent book, uh, The Road to Ruin, which came out last November. But I I look at 1998. That was the Russia long-term capital management crisis. The world was just hours away from closing every major exchange in the world. I I know that because I negotiated that bailout. I I was in the room with the Fed and the Treasury, and I know how that evolved and how it went down. 2008, we were just days away from the sequential collapse of every bank in the world. You know, Bear Stearns had failed. Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, Lehman Brothers had all failed. Goldman, or sorry, Morgan Stanley would have been next, then Goldman Sachs, et cetera. So both times, 1998, 2008, 10 years apart, we came hours or days away from the complete collapse of the system. 
But that didn't happen because both times they were bailed out. But here's the point. In 1998, Wall Street got together and bailed out a hedge fund. In 2008, the central banks bailed out Wall Street. In the next crisis, which could be 2018 or could be tomorrow, who's going to bail out the central banks? In other words, each crisis gets bigger than the one before. Each bailout gets bigger than the one before. We're now beyond the capacity of central banks to bail themselves out because their balance sheets are stretched. They've, They've never normalized since the 2008 crisis. And so the only clean balance sheet left in the world is the IMF, which could, and in my view, will issue these SDRs to reliquify the world in a global financial panic. Now, there are a couple other alternatives. One is gold standard. You could restore confidence with a gold standard, but to do that and not have it be extremely deflationary, you'd have to make the price of gold $10,000 an ounce. Now, that's not a guess. That's not a number I made up to attract attention. That's actually the result of, just look at the official... M1 money supply of the major economies is $24 trillion of 40% backing. You would need $9.6 trillion of gold. We only have 33,000 tons. Uh, that's the, all the official gold in the world. So it's eighth grade math. Divide $9.6 trillion by 33,000 tons. Convert to ounces and you get $10,000 an ounce. That's the price gold would have to be to support the money supply without deflation. So you're either going to see inflation through SDRs by the trillions, or you're going to see the price of gold go to $10,000, which is nothing happens in isolation. If gold goes to $10,000, that's the world of $400 oil, $100 silver. I mean, everything goes up together. None of this stuff happens um, by itself. So those are two of the possible outcomes. The third outcome, and you could actually see these things in combinations, would be what I call ICE-9, which is freezing the system. ICE-9 is a is a metaphor I stole from Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote about it in a right. early 1960s novel called Cat's Cradle, which I highly recommend. It's hilarious, dark comedy, but very, very funny. But he writes about a mad scientist, a physicist, who invents a molecule similar to water with two differences. One is the boiling temperature is 114 degrees Fahrenheit, which means it's frozen at room temperature. And the second thing is that it's so the melting point is 114 degrees Fahrenheit. The second thing is when a molecule of this ice nine comes in contact with a molecule of water, it turns the water into ice nine. So the plot is the scientist gives his three children vials of this ice nine, and if they open the vial and pour it into a stream or river or lake, it all that water turns to ice nine, and then the, the river and the estuary and the ocean and the whole planet turns to ice and life on Earth dies. It's a, no, is this a doomsday machine? Well, same thing in the financial system. If you suspend redemptions on money market funds to stop people redeeming their money market funds in a panic, they'll just take the money out of the bank. That means you have to close the banks, and then they'll sell stocks, and that means you have to close the stock exchange. In other words, it's just like the ice nine molecules turning water to ice. You're going to have to lock down and freeze every part of the financial system to buy time while you convene an international monetary conference to consider gold and SDRs and the other things we talked about. So you definitely want some of your wealth, not all of it by any means, but some of your wealth in the form of physical gold outside the financial system, you know, silver as well. I think silver plays a role. So you can stand this kind of response function to to the next global financial crisis. So in one question that always comes into my mind, and it totally makes sense to me, In many regards, I think the only way out of the mess we're in is through some kind of inflationary measure, whether that's, you know, $10,000 gold or even with the SDR, I presume the dollar would go up significant or would be deflated 
significantly as well. But, you know, in April of 33, of course, you had, you know, Franklin Roosevelt making it illegal to own physical gold and collected it all. And then they valued it against the dollar. So for people who own gold, is that something worth considering in the future? Sorry, the fact that they should have gold, which I definitely oh. recommend, or the fact that it might be well, confiscated? Well, the or, fact or, that it might be confiscated. I guess right. that's what goes through my mind sometimes when I think about owning physical gold. Is It sure does make a lot of sense when you look at the economy and you're looking at these countries that are hoarding gold. And, well, if they're hoarding gold, then maybe we should be too. But then you look at what happened in 1933, and it makes me think twice. Well, a couple of things, Buck, you make a very good point. First of all, is that everything describing this, you know, this Einstein scenario, some people kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, that would never happen. It has all happened before and it has happened in the United States. The New York Stock Exchange was closed for five months from July to December 1914. Five months, completely closed, not five days or even five weeks. All the banks in the United States were closed by order of the president in 1933. Richard Nixon suspended gold, dollar convertibility into gold in 1971. So all these things have happened before, and they've happened more recently in other countries. You know, Greece, they shut down the banking system. Cyprus, they shut down the banking system, reprogrammed the ATM. So they were either shot or you could only get maybe the equivalent of a $100 a day for gas and groceries. India just demonetized. They basically declared yep. the two most popular denominations illegal. They said, your money is no longer any good. And you had to bring it to the bank. Of course, the tax authorities were waiting at the bank to get your name and you know taxpayer ID number when you did that. So these extreme remedies are not that rare. They do happen and they'll happen again, in my view. As far as Roosevelt confiscating the gold, a couple of things. He didn't quite confiscate it. What he said was, you have to turn in all of your gold and we'll give you $20.67 per ounce. That was the official price of gold. And he had to do that because under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, the government may not take property without just compensation. Right. So what Roosevelt did is the price of gold at the time is, I'll use $20 around them, or technically $20.67. He said, I'm ordering you to bring your gold to a treasury substation or post office, and we'll give you $20 an ounce for your gold, which he did. And that's how he got around the constitutional objection. But then, as you correctly described, in the next few months, he raised the price to $35 an ounce to create inflation to help the U.S. get out of the Great Depression, which was a very powerful deflationary vector that we couldn't escape from. It was like a black hole. We were getting sucked into deflation. So he said, well, I'll just cheapen the dollar relative to gold to value the dollar. And that inflation will cause the price of everything else to go up, which it did. Copper and cotton and uh, steel and oil, all the other major commodities. In the middle of the Great Depression, 1933-34, that was one of the strongest periods of stock market growth ever. The, the stock market boomed and the economy actually grew. Now, it was started at a very low base and we had a second recession in 1937. So that's why the Great Depression looks like it lasted so long, which it did. But there was this boom in the middle of the Great Depression because of the devaluation of the dollar. But technically, I mean, it was a form of theft. In my view, confiscation is a correct word because Roosevelt knew he was going to do this. So if I know that I'm going to raise the price of gold to $35 and I force you to give it to me at 20 in effect, I've stolen the $15 right. per ounce. It's kind of like inside information. But the, he did get around the Constitution that way by paying the 20 bucks, even though he knew he was going to raise it to 35 Now, come forward to today, there is no fixed price for gold. So when Roosevelt did this, he was on a gold. We were on a gold standard, so he could use the twenty dollar price to get around the Constitution. But today, there is no fixed price. 
And the world in which the president's going to have to do this, the price of gold would already have gone up a lot. So maybe it's $5,000 an ounce and they think it's going to 10000 but at least you'd get your $5,000 at a minimum. Exactly. Right. Maybe more. So I think for legal reasons, Fifth Amendment reasons, they would have to give you the market price and it would be such a dire state of affairs that the market price would have run away already. And yeah. the market price would be where you want it to be. And so you'd get your money's worth, number one. Number two, if it were more extreme, some kind of martial law scenario, I'm not sure people would go along. You know, in 1933, there was a lot more trust in government. There was a lot of fear of what was going on in the Great Depression. And people said, okay, you know, Roosevelt knows best. I don't know if that's a reaction you would get today. There might be some civil resistance to that. So for all these reasons, and that's also why I recommend 10%. I mean, I could be wrong about this. I don't think so. But this is why I don't say, you know, get do 50% sure. or sure. 100%. I think, I think 10% is the right amount. Right. And I know you've also talked about, you know, land and fine art, things like effectively that we talk about on this show, which is real assets that are going to, you know, go up in value if there is a significant amount of inflation. I know you have a hard stop here, so I want to be sensitive to that. Listen, I really do appreciate having you on. And I want to, I guess you've got the paperback of Death of Money coming the Death out. Death of Money, yep. And it's really- available for, uh, for pre-order on Amazon right now. The official publication date is a couple days away, but you can go to Amazon and, and pre-order right now. And as I say, it does, it's not just a paperback edition of the old book. It does have new material, including some never-before-published information about insider trading in advance of 9-11. I talked about that in the hardcover, but since then, folks have come forward to tell me their own stories, including you know, major government securities dealers who saw things that really make your hair stand on end. So I've included that in the book as well. Yeah, that's really phenomenal story. And the one other thing I'll mention is that you can follow Jim a little closer by going through Agora Financial and getting onto one of his systems there basically gets you sort of front seat to a lot of what Jim's thinking about the current economy, etc. But Jim, I do really want to thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Buck. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jim Rickards. Now, you really need to read all of this guy's books. I mean, at the very least, you should read The New Case for Gold. And you can find that, by the way, on the resources section of WealthFormula.com. His latest book, The Road to Ruin, is also phenomenal, and you should really consider picking that up as well. I'm convinced, like Jim, that it does make some sense to own a chunk of physical gold these days. I mean, with the uncertainty of the economy and prospect for significant inflation, I think, to me at least, it's sort of a no-brainer to have some exposure. You know, the thing is, though, that, again, this is all my opinion, and I'm not trying to give any financial advice, but when I look at gold, I mean, I don't think of it as an investment. To me, gold is money, right? So while currency wars continue to devalue all global currencies, 
gold is actually a great hedge. It's not really part of the currency war. I mean, gold does not really change in value. Currencies do. Fiat currencies do. And why do I say that? Well, because if you look back in time and say the Roman times of Christ, an ounce of gold would have bought you a nice toga and some sandals. And today, an ounce of gold buys you a nice suit and some shoes. What I'm saying here is that gold really didn't lose value over the last several thousand years. All that happened is that fiat currencies, all the other currencies around it, they changed in values. Look at the dollar. Now, look, I'm about 43. Well, I am 43. And when I was a kid, I remember vividly that it was 50 cents. That's what you needed to put into a soda machine if you wanted to get a Coke or something. And now whenever I drop off my daughters at tennis or whatever, it's like $2 or I don't know. It's my, maybe it was more. I can't remember. You know, they put your credit card in now. So sometimes, you know, think about the two quarters anymore, but it was at least $2. So the value of fiat currencies change. Gold really doesn't. I mean, it just tends to buy the same thing. Now, of course, you know, in any short period of time, there's going to be fluctuations. But I think if you look over a long period of time, it holds its value better than just about anything. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying to run out and put all your money in physical gold. I mean, really, honestly, that's not really that fun, right? I mean, gold doesn't cash flow. It doesn't get me really excited. You know, hey, I'm going to go buy some gold. This is cool. I'm saying it might just be prudent to consider putting some of your liquid assets, maybe some of what you currently hold as cash, into physical gold to hedge against inflation. Now, listen, of course, there are other things that will hedge inflation as well. There's real estate and fine art. They also, as Jim would point out, as Jim Rickards would point out, these are also things that will hold value in a period of uh, significant inflation. But anyway, so here's my call to action this week. So get Jim Rickards' book, New Case for Gold. And feel free to use my affiliate link, by the way. It's on wealthformula.com. And if you click on that and buy the book, I might get a nickel out of it. And it'll be cool if I can get a nickel out of it. But on that resources page, you can click on that link to New Case for Gold to get that. But you also see another link. It is for the company from which I buy my physical gold. Because it's important to understand we're talking about physical gold here, not gold stocks. Because gold stocks are pretty much, if you read if you read Jim's book, you'll understand why. But we really want to focus on physical gold. But anyway, on the resources pages, what you'll see is a link to a place that I buy physical gold from. And it's called Bullion Vault. I own gold, but I don't certainly don't keep it at my home. And I don't even keep it in the U.S. I keep it in offshore vaults where it is also places where it's redeemable from, but I don't keep it in the U.S. And part of the reason is that I am a little paranoid about gold confiscation, that sort of thing. But if it's offshore, then I feel a little bit better about that. Now, Bullion Vault is one of the companies that does this pretty well. And I've actually done a significant amount of due diligence in comparisons of these kinds of companies. And I personally found them to be the most reliable and cost-effective. So again, go to the resource page on wealthformula.com, get the new case for gold, and check out Bullion Vault. Now, if you decide not to buy gold, that's fine too. The biggest thing I can tell you and the thing that I urge you not to do is to avoid learning about it. You know, if gold goes to 10000 or if it goes to $500, 
you want to be able to say that you made that decision based on some kind of knowledge or some kind of ignorance. You don't want to just watch the world go by because that's a quick way to not become wealthy in this world or to lose your wealth rather. And finally, I just want to get back to basics. And if you like the show, do me a favor and email someone the link. We are already in the top 1% of shows on iTunes in terms of monthly downloads. And that's why we get people like Jim Rickards coming on the show. So if you like what I'm doing, help me grow it. Write reviews on iTunes. Find me on Facebook. You know, friend me and share the podcast links I send out to your friends. I think we are on to something really good, folks. The show, uh, you know, keeps, in my view at least, hopefully you think so, it's getting better and better. And we're getting fantastic guests and we're building a community. And that's not easy to do, but I think we're doing it and we're doing it well. So with that, I will leave you. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.